are you arguing then that strict scrutiny should apply here? No, the normal scrutiny should apply. Welcome to A Rational Basis Review, the podcast that introduces, analyzes, and contextualizes some of the foundational constitutional law cases and issues that form the basis of the first-year constitutional law curriculum. Just because constitutional law might seem irrational doesn't mean you can't or don't understand it. We're here to help with that. We're your hosts. I'm Leah Littman, an assistant professor of law at the University of Michigan. And I'm Melissa Murray. I'm the Frederick I. and Grace Stokes professor of law at NYU. And I'm Kate Shaw. I'm a professor of law at Cardozo Law School in New York City. In this episode, we're going to cover race-conscious remedies. In United States versus Korematsu, the Supreme Court made clear that strict scrutiny was the appropriate standard of review for laws that distinguished on the basis of race. To be sure, this did not lead to the invalidation of the executive order challenged in Korematsu, but it did have enormous implications for Jim Crow laws, which explicitly classified on the basis of race. In Brown v. Board of Education in 1954, the Supreme Court declared segregation in public schools unconstitutional, which set off a spate of legal challenges that eventually unraveled the fabric of Jim Crow laws throughout the South. As the logic went, because Jim Crow laws explicitly discriminated on the basis of race, they triggered strict scrutiny. Under this punishing standard, states had a hard time establishing that segregation was necessary to further a compelling state interest. But what happens when, 20 years later, states begin the process of trying to compensate minorities for the injuries of past race discrimination? How should a court treat laws that single out minorities, that is, that classify on the basis of race, but do so ostensibly to help minorities? This was the question that vexed the court for many years in its consideration of race-conscious remedies. You can think about this as Gretchen Wiener turning to Karen and saying, you can't just ask people why they're white. Back to race-conscious remedies. One of the first cases to raise the issue of race-conscious remedies was DeFunis versus Odegaard, a 1974 challenge to the University of Washington Law School's affirmative action policy that gave a race-based preference in the admissions process. Marco DeFunis had been denied admission to the public law school and sued on the ground that consideration of race in the admissions policy violated the Equal Protection Clause. The court, in a masterful use of justiciability doctrines, which we covered on an earlier episode, concluded that the case was moot because while the litigation was pending, DeFunis had been allowed to enroll in the law school and was in his third year of law school when the challenge came before the court. However, the court could not dodge the issue for long. Four years later, in Regents of the University of California versus Bakke, the court again came face-to-face with an affirmative action challenge. Alan Bakke applied to the UC Davis Medical School. He was not admitted, likely because of his age, but he sued on the ground that the medical school reserved 16 of 100 available slots in the class for minorities on the ground that minority physicians were needed in underserved communities. Bakke argued that the set-aside program was a racial quota that should be reviewed under strict scrutiny and invalidated. Critically, there was no majority opinion in Bakke. In a fractured plurality, the court invalidated UC Davis's medical school's set-aside policy, denouncing it as an unconstitutional quota. But the court also suggested that colleges and universities could use race as one factor in admissions decisions to benefit minorities and to enhance diversity. Justice Brennan, joined by Justices White, Marshall, and Blackman, would have upheld the entire program. As they argued, because the set-aside program was designed to benefit minorities rather than to harm them, it was distinct from the kind of facial racial classification that would warrant strict scrutiny. 
The appropriate standard for racial classifications that benefit minorities, they argued, was intermediate scrutiny, which had been established as the appropriate standard for gender classifications in the 1976 case Craig versus Boren. Using intermediate scrutiny, these justices would have upheld the policy as well as the use of race as a factor in the admissions process more generally. Justice Stevens, joined by Chief Justice Berger and Justices Stewart and Rehnquist, would have decided the case on statutory rather than constitutional grounds, invalidating the set-aside policy and the use of race in the admissions process as a violation of Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits recipients of federal funds from discriminating on the basis of race. Tie a knot in your mental handkerchief about that one. But the lasting legacy of Baki was a solo opinion by Justice Powell who maintained that strict scrutiny should be the standard for all racial classifications, even those that benefit minorities. Justice Powell, however, also noted that colleges and universities had a compelling interest in composing a diverse student body, and thus could permissibly consider race as a factor in admissions. After Bakke, there are a number of cases challenging affirmative action programs at the state and federal levels. In 1980, the court decided Fololove versus Klutznik, concluding that the challenged federal affirmative action program was justified to remedy past discrimination, but said that the opinion does not adopt, either expressly or implicitly, the formulas of analysis articulated in cases like Bakke. So again, there's still confusion surrounding these programs, whether they're constitutional, what standard of review applies, and what sort of state interests might justify their use. All of this comes to a head in a 1989 case, Richmond versus J.A. Croson. Croson involved a challenge to the city of Richmond's minority set-aside program for awarding municipal contracts. Richmond, the former capital of the Confederacy and a city with a black population of just over 50 percent, had set a goal of awarding 30 percent of city construction contracts to minority-owned businesses. According to its findings, local, state, and national patterns of discrimination had resulted in all but lack of access for minority-owned businesses. Indeed, although the city's population was more than 50% black, only 0.67% of its prime construction contracts had been awarded to minority businesses in recent years. Modeling their plan on the federal plan upheld in Fulalove, Richmond consciously sought to remedy what it termed widespread racial discrimination in the local, state, and national construction industries. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court disagreed. In reviewing the Richmond policy, the first issue was to identify the appropriate standard of review. Writing for the court, Justice O'Connor quickly resolved any ambiguity around this question. As she explained, strict scrutiny should apply to all race-based classifications, whether benign or not. Because racial bias could be invidious, it could be difficult to accurately assess whether a race-based classification was nefarious or ameliorative. As such, strict scrutiny was necessary to, as she put it, smoke out any nefarious state purposes behind a race-based classification. Having established the standard of review as strict scrutiny, Justice O'Connor emphasized that while strict scrutiny might be strict, in theory, it need not be fatal in fact. She still found the Richmond policy wanting. A big problem, in her view, was the fact that the policy applied broadly to include a wide range of minority groups as beneficiaries. This wide sweep, she explained, was not properly tailored to address the purported discrimination in Richmond's construction industry. Further, she was concerned that the Richmond City Council, which was majority black, might have crafted the policy with a degree of community self-dealing in mind. 
More troublingly, she wrote, the council's efforts to address discrimination by singling out minorities for preferential treatment would, quote, open the door to competing claims for remedial relief for every disadvantaged group. The dream of a nation of equal citizens in a society where race is irrelevant to personal opportunity and achievement would be lost in a mosaic of shifting preferences based on inherently unmeasurable claims of past wrongs. If Croson resolved the question of the appropriate standard of review, Justice O'Connor's musings that strict scrutiny need not be fatal in fact raise the question whether affirmative action policies in higher education might be constitutionally permissible. The court had never resolved many of the extant issues in Bakke, but in 2003's Grutter versus Bollinger, it would get another bite at the apple. Grutter involved a challenge to the University of Michigan Law School's admissions policy, which considered race, alongside a range of other factors, in assessing law school applicants. According to the law school, and building on Justice Powell's decision in Bakke, the use of race was necessary to achieve a diverse law school class, and a diverse law school student body was necessary to train lawyers to work and practice in a pluralistic society. Again, writing for a five-to-four majority of the court, Justice O'Connor credited what she termed Michigan's holistic approach to the use of race. Race was not a determinative factor in admissions decisions, but rather one of many indicia that the law school considered in its decision-making. More interestingly, O'Connor reiterated the arguments lodged by the armed forces and military academies and corporations in their amicus briefs before the court, that diversity in higher education was necessary to feed a diverse military and workforce. She also reasoned that in 25 years, such race-conscious interventions would not be necessary. However, in 2016, speaking to her biographer, Evan Thomas, she recanted this statement as naive. The dissents had much to say. Justice Kennedy argued that Justice O'Connor and the majority had been unduly deferential to Michigan's stated interests. As he argued, the majority's deference was more in keeping with rational basis review than the strict scrutiny standard. Justices Thomas and Scalia, for their part, lodged similar complaints. Justice Thomas argued that Michigan's interest in using race in its admission process was less about improving the classroom experience and more about maintaining the school's elite status by subscribing to a kind of racial aesthetics. He questioned whether the law school really served the interests of minority students it recruited to serve its compelling interests in diversity. Likewise, Justice Scalia bemoaned the policy as little more than law school elitism. If Michigan wanted to be diverse, they argued, race-neutral methods, like an admissions lottery, would suffice, though they would hobble the school's ability to maintain its top-tier status. Meaningfully, in tandem with Grutter, the court also took up a challenge to the Michigan undergraduate admissions policy, which gave additional points to students from underrepresented minority groups. Such a policy, the court maintained, could not survive constitutional scrutiny. It was the antithesis of the sensitive, holistic policy credited in Grutter. Though it should be noted that the undergraduate division received 15 times the volume of applications for admission than did the law school. Thus, while professional and graduate programs could engage in the holistic review credited in Grutter, questions remained about how the much larger undergraduate program would be able to craft constitutionally permissible race-conscious programs. In Parents Involved in Community Schools versus Seattle School District Number 1, the court went back to its brown roots in a challenge to two school districts' voluntary desegregation plans. Meaningfully, the court's composition was quite different from that in Grutter. Chief Justice Rehnquist had been replaced by Chief Justice Roberts, and Justice O'Connor had retired and was replaced by our fan favorite, Justice Alito. Both Louisville and Seattle school districts had voluntarily used individualized race classifications to achieve diversity and or to avoid racial isolation through student assignments. The question was whether the Constitution permitted them to do so. 
This was yet another fractured opinion for the court. In a plurality opinion written by Chief Justice Roberts and joined by Justices Scalia, Thomas, and Alito, Roberts concluded that the school's interest in cultivating a racially diverse environment was not sufficiently compelling and that the use of race for this goal was not narrowly tailored. As he explained, this amounted to no more than, quote-unquote, racial balancing in the manner of a quota, which is unconstitutional and cannot serve as a compelling state interest. Justice Kennedy, in his concurrence, however, took a more generous view of this, suggesting that the schools could use race as a means of furthering their interest in cultivating a racially diverse environment and curbing student isolation. In a dissent, Justice Stephen Breyer accused the plurality of implicitly overruling Grutter. This prompted the Chief Justice to issue this rejoinder. The way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. In response to parents involved, in 2011, the U.S. Department of Education and the U.S. Department of Justice jointly issued guidance on the voluntary use of race to achieve diversity and avoid racial isolation in elementary and secondary schools, acknowledging the flexibility that school districts have in taking proactive steps to meet the compelling interests of promoting diversity and avoiding racial isolation within the parameters of current law. Back on the higher education front, colleges and universities continued to try to bring their admissions policies into compliance with Grutter. The University of Texas took a novel approach. It crafted an admissions policy called the Top 10% Plan, which admitted to its two flagship state universities the top 10% of students at each Texas high school. It then used a second round of admissions for those who had not been admitted using the Top 10% Plan. And in this round, the state considered race, as well as other factors, to construct its class. Abigail Fisher, who had applied to but was not admitted to UT Austin, challenged the admissions policy as an impermissible race-based quota. The top 10% plan, she argued, made clear that there were race-neutral alternatives for achieving the state's compelling interest in a diverse student body. Critically, when Abigail Fisher was denied admission to the University of Texas, she matriculated at Louisiana State University. The University of Texas argued that this, in the manner of defuness, had mooted the case. No dice, though. The court proceeded to the merits in this challenge. And here's where things get tricky. Oral arguments in this case were heard in December 2015. At that sitting, Justice Scalia made it pretty clear how he would vote in this case. Let's take a listen. There are are those who contend that it does not benefit African Americans to, to get them into the University of Texas where they do not do well, uh, as opposed to having them go to a less uh, advanced school, a less, a a slower track school where they do well. One one of the briefs, pointed out that uh, that most of the most of the black uh, scientists in this country don't come from schools like the University of Texas so th- this they court come from lesser schools where they do not feel uh, that they're uh, that they're being pushed ahead in in classes that are too too fast for them this so, court oh, I, you know I'm, I'm just not impressed by the fact that that the University of Texas may have fewer maybe it ought to have fewer but in February 2016 Justice Scalia passed away unexpectedly he would not be voting in the resolution of this case. So an eight-person court took up the question of whether the Texas policy survived constitutional scrutiny. Writing for a five-to-three majority, Justice Kennedy confirmed three controlling principles. The first was that strict scrutiny was the appropriate standard of review for affirmative action admissions processes. The second was that there should be judicial deference to reasoned explanations of the decision to pursue student body diversity. 
And the third, that there should be no judicial deference for the determination of whether the use of race in admissions processes was narrowly tailored. Texas's policy, he concluded, was constitutional under these principles. Justice Kennedy specifically addressed Fisher's argument that Texas had race-neutral alternatives available to serve its interests in diversity. As he explained, while the top 10% plan was nominally race-neutral, its operation depended on the fact of Texas's endemic de facto residential segregation, which led to schools being predominantly majority white or majority minority, depending on the neighborhood. So the policy was race-conscious and was also designed to bring about racial diversity. In a lengthy dissent joined by Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Thomas, Justice Alito wrote that the university's stated interests in diversity were not sufficiently measurable and upon review were unpersuasive and at times less than candid. Although Alito noted that the articulated goals were laudable, he wrote that they were not concrete or precise and offered no limiting principle for the use of racial preferences. Justice Thomas also authored a dissent where he reiterated his view that, quote, a state's use of race in higher education admissions decision is categorically prohibited by the Equal Protection Clause. So where are we with race-conscious remedies? Fisher's 5-3 victory seems a world away from the court that we have today with its 6-3 conservative supermajority. And as we have discussed in our other podcast, Strict Scrutiny, currently pending on the court's cert docket is a challenge to Harvard University's use of race in its admissions protocols. Meaningfully, because Harvard is a private institution, this is a statutory challenge, questioning whether the use of race in admissions violates Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits race discrimination by entities that receive federal funding. The court asked the Biden administration to submit its views on the issue, which suggested that perhaps the court was not interested in taking up the question of race-conscious remedies right now. Meaningfully, the Biden administration submitted its views to the court in December, well after the October 2021 term had taken off. But to be clear, even though the Biden administration urged the court not to grant cert on this particular issue, noting that the lower courts had faithfully applied the extant jurisprudence, the court may not have a long leash on this question. While it's clear that there may be no appetite to take up Harvard's challenge, there's already a percolating challenge to the University of North Carolina's use of race in admissions. And that challenge, because it involves a public university, would squarely implicate Fisher, Grutter, and the Equal Protection Clause. That's all for this episode. Thanks to our producer, Melody Rowell. If you'd like to learn more about current issues in the Supreme Court, check out our Supreme Court-focused podcast, Strict Scrutiny. 